On the show today, I am so excited to introduce Dr. L. Carol Scott. Um, If you've listened to the show before or have been following Step Queen for any length of time, you've probably heard me talk at least in a roundabout way about uh, the traumatic nature of my upbringing and, and how the environment that I was raised in really shaped the way that I stepmothered. Stepmothering really shone a light on all of the areas in my life that I had not yet healed, all of the trauma I had not yet healed. And so today on the show, I'm super excited to be having this conversation um, with Dr. L. Carol Scott because she has essentially devoted her entire life to unpacking childhood trauma and teaching women in their adult lives how to essentially redo that. In other words, if you or somebody that you know and love and is close to you experienced trauma in her childhood between the ages of zero and seven specifically are the ages that Dr. Scott focuses on. But if you or somebody that you know and love experienced trauma between those ages of zero and seven, the implications of that are lifelong. And so what Dr. Scott does is essentially gives you the tools and the opportunities to go back in time and have another shot at establishing the the neural pathways in your brain that would be created if you had not experienced a trauma during those time periods um, and essentially gives you an opportunity to rewire those pathways because as we know trauma legitimately changes the structure of the human brain it literally changes the way that our brain is wired so Dr. L. Carol Scott is a trauma-informed developmental psychologist and her work is all about the first 2,500 days of our lives and how those first 2,500 days of our lives determine our skills for relationships specifically and all of our relationships for the rest of our lives. So the way that she carries out her life's mission is by teaching us what we've always wanted to know about what makes people tick and how those first 2,500 days, the first seven years of our lives continue to affect us and show up in all of our patterns moving forward. Dr. Scott is also a TEDx speaker. She's an author. She's nationally respected as a thought leader in early care and education She's a keynote speaker. She's a trainer. She's a coach. Um, She supports teams and individuals anywhere to figure out how to redo pain, to have successful relationships, which we all know that having successful relationships is the ticket to having success anywhere in life. So I'm super pleased to have this interview and air this interview for you now um, because Dr. Scott is also such an amazing person. She really lives the dream and travels all over to warm places during the wintertime. So 
you might notice that some of this interview quality is a little bit spotty at times. It can sound a little bit glitchy. Um, the editing team has done their best to make sure that the glitches have been edited out as well as possible, but you might notice the sound quality does kind of fluctuate throughout the interview. Um, so thank you for understanding and thank you for you know, kind of trying to look past that and focusing on the message that's being shared instead. Um, I know it can be frustrating to listen to sound when the quality is kind of dicey, but the the content of this interview and the profound nature of what Dr. Scott has been studying for the last 40 years is, is well worth being a little bit annoyed by glitchy audio. So without further ado, we're going to get into it. I hope you enjoy this interview. Don't forget to reach out to me at the Step Queen on Instagram and let me know what you thought about this incredible conversation. Where would you take your life if you knew you could not fail? I get it. As a stepmom, mom, and entrepreneur, sometimes it can feel like what everyone else expects of you versus what you dream about for yourself are on opposite ends of the spectrum. As a woman, you're taught from a very young age what society thinks you're worth based on how you look, how you behave, and how much money you're allowed to bring in. But I'm here to show you that you can be the woman who has it all, and not just on the outside. I'm Brittany Lynch, and you are the queen of your castle. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Queen of Your Castle podcast. I am your host, Brittany Lynch, and I am beside myself excited with our amazing guest that we have, we have on the on show today, Dr. L. Carol Scott. Thank you so much for being here. I am personally so invested in this conversation that we're about to have. I know my clients are going to be so excited to hear what you've got to say about this and everyone tuning in is going to just be floored. Um, so thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Really glad to have you. Thank you so much, Brittany. And I am thrilled to be here. This is a great group of people to have this conversation with and for. They really are the best listener. We're going to spring up stroke your ego here for a little moment. I really think it takes a really special kind of person to step into the role of stepmom because in my interpretation, in my years doing this sort of work, I've really noticed that becoming a step parent, becoming a stepmother really pushes some buttons that biological mothering wouldn't necessarily push. You're expected to show a different kind of restraint. You're expected to show a different sort of impulse control. You're expected to do things a little bit differently than their biological parents would. And because of that, because of that, you know, especially the women who have found their way into your stepmom story, which is my, my group program are really invited to kind of evolve to a higher level of, of existence by healing some of the old hurt and the old wounds that maybe they didn't even know were there in the first place. So that is why you are going to be such magic to speak to us here today and why we're so grateful for that. So, I mean, I'm not going to give away the ending here. I'm just going to ask you, you know, in your own words, 
explain to me, like I'm a third grader, what it is exactly that you do and that you specialize in. Oh, I can put that in a very short sentence. I'm sort of like a child whisperer. Mm. I explain how children grow and develop into the grownups that we are to people who don't know child development a bit, who, for whom it is not a profession. And mm -hmm. I take my 40 years of professional knowledge and my PhD and master's degree and bachelor's degree and all those years of education. And I roll all that fancy language and highfalutin research into very understandable bites of information that people can really use in their day-to-day -day interactions, not only with children, but with the other adults in their lives who somewhere inside of them have children running amok sometimes. <laughs> I think that, you know, you make a really good point in that there's so much research that's done um, in parenting and so much research that's done in psychology that it's not very easily digestible by a lot of yes. people for a lot of people, right? There's a lot of jargon. It's really heavy. It's really hard to get through. It's really intense, but one, you know, one study, or I guess it was a study, the ACE study that was done. I think a lot of people mm -hmm. have heard about that, the adverse childhood experiences <laughs> study. And I noticed that that was kind of uh, a theme in your work. So could you explain to me, you know, what are these adverse childhood experiences and how did sort of learning what those were create a bridge for you in your work today? That's a terrific question. And it's really, it's a relatively longish answer to give a little bit of backstory. Um, when I was early in my career, when I was just, you know, turning 30 and I was still a, not even halfway through my PhD program, I was working in a university setting called a laboratory preschool, which is a university preschool where kids not only go to preschool, but they get used as research subjects by graduate students learning about child development. Um, and other people come and watch them through one-way windows to learn about child development, instructor at the university or any one of those. And I was a PhD student at the same time. And I went to therapy. I realized how broken I was at about 30, I realized I was really broken and I needed help. So I went to therapy and my, the first intersection was my therapist trying to help me learn how to be a whole person and trying to help me develop what I now have come to think of as social and emotional capacities that the three, four and five-year-old children in my preschool were developing right in front of me every day. It was their developmental process that she was talking to me about. And so at 33, 34, 35, I'm learning how to have some of the assets for social interpersonal skills that these three, four and five-year-old kids are trying to figure out every day. So that was the first sort of piece that fell together for me. But so you're saying, you're saying you're, you are observing these children in this preschool setting, these three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. At the same time, you're going to therapy. You're having a conversation with this therapist and this therapist is essentially encouraging you to do what you are encouraging the three, four, five-year-olds to do. Am I, am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And actually the three, four and five-year-olds are sort of just on the other side of where I was. I was sort of like a toddler in my development emotionally uh, in a lot of ways. My uh, adverse childhood experiences, my ACEs started with some sexual abuse that began in infancy. And so my whole personality development was around trauma, fear, uh, pain, basically. And so by the time I was three, I was already probably a pretty hot mess. And so the developmental loss for me was really an infant and toddler 
years. And so here were these kids building on that and building on top of it. And I didn't even have that. And so what I could see was these little kids, here's what I really observed first. These little kids absolutely know who they are. They have no doubt. They will tell you right now what they think, how they feel about something, what their opinion is about something, what they want. They're real clear always on what they want at three, four, and five, right? So, and they're just like right there with it. They're right there with it. They're totally mindful. They're in the present. They're in the now, and they know what they want. And 99% of the adults I know do not know how to do that. We don't know how we feel. We've completely lost track of the fact that emotions happen in our body. We don't even connect to the body emotions anymore. We just talk about feelings like they're intellectual processes in our heads. And so all of that great stuff, all the self-awareness, all the mindfulness, all the living in the now that kids do as toddlers, we lose it by the time we're adults. And now here we are trying to reclaim it. Everybody wants to be mindful and self-aware and in the moment now, everybody wants to live in the now. And all we have to really do is go back and be preschoolers and toddlers and we'll figure it out real fast. That's how much do. how much of that disconnection from being mindful, being in the present, identifying our needs, <laughs> identifying with our feelings, how much of that, in your professional opinion, is kind of, for lack of a better term, like beaten out of our kids and programmed out of our kids by parents trying to teach them to fit into social and cultural norms and how much of it would happen (laughs) regardless of the type of parenting that these kids had just because of the culture that we live in. Yeah. And that, again, I'm going to give that a little bit bigger answer than that, because this is about the wiring of the human brain. So what is happening for children, mostly from birth to three and then a little bit more on to age five, is that the neurons that are our brain are actually connecting to each other for the first time. We each are born with what I like to think of as a skull full of loose noodles, a bowl full of loose noodles, all these neurons, a hundred billion of them not connected to each other. And every second of experience from birth connects the neurons to each other and builds the architecture of the brain. And then once the brain is built, everything we do comes from that wiring. Every action we take, every reaction we have, everything we can do and cannot do is wired in. And an awful lot of the social and emotional package is wired in from birth to three. Okay. So knowing that then to address your question is, what what are you going to do when your wiring is faulty? Well, you have to to rewire it. So we have to know, first of all, that that the wiring is happening. That's my main message to parents, aunties, uncles, grandparents, teachers, childcare providers everywhere. The brain is being wired by what we do, by how we interact with the child. Everything from a little cool breeze across the cheek while they lie outside on a blanket under a tree, to two people yelling in the next room in angry voices, to a scratchy blanket, to they're hungry and somebody feeds them, or they're hungry and nobody feeds them, all those experiences are hooking up a hundred million new neural connections every single second of their lives. So the good news is you'd have to be doing an awful lot wrong an awful lot of the time to really ruin your kid's brain, right? <laughs> if they're making a hundred million new connections a second, you'd have to be a terrible parent like 99% of the time to really mess your kid's brain up. And anything that's consistent is going to be part of the wiring pattern. So if it's consistent, the child says, this is what I want from the adults around them is you can't have it. And not only that, but that's not a good thing to want. 
not only can you not have it, but it's not something you should want. It's not a desirable thing for you to want. You're not quite okay as a person if you want that is sort of the message. Or you feel that way? Well, wow, that's a big feeling, mister. We don't let feelings like that happen around here. That's just too messy for us. And so if that's the consistent message, then yes, we do get wired to have stories about ourselves. You know, I was listening to um, something, uh, either read something or listened to something you said about the, the lies society taught us from the moment we were born was the phrase that I wrote down in my notes. And not only are those lies about things like, you know, gender role stereotypes and what marriage is supposed to be like, Cinderella, Prince Charming, et cetera, but it is stories about ourselves. It's about, we get wired into us, the story of who we are, who other people are to us and what the value is that we have for each other. All those stories get wired in too. And that's really important to understand that when we tell kids what you want, what you think and what you feel is not okay with me, you don't fit here. We're telling them a story about themselves that they are learning. That's an important thing to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For the person who has, you know, never come across these sort of concepts where, you know, the, the, the patterns of that we inherited from our, our own parents that they inherited from their own parents. If someone has like never come across this before, I'd never really realized that we are instilling kind of faulty programming into our kids and, and teaching them to be ashamed of their feelings and, and ashamed of their thoughts. If, the, if this is the first time I've ever come across this work or come across these concepts and I'm now understanding I have a different responsibility to do things differently with my own children or with my own stepchildren, what, what would be your advice as to like where to start? Would you recommend that you start with healing your own self and kind of looking at your own birth to seven years? Or would you start in trying to change your parenting? You know, if you're already parenting a, a little who's in that birth to seven, I think it's kind of important to do both at the same time. And we always have to put our own mox oxygen mask on first before assisting others. That's the rule on the airplane and it's the rule in mental health. If I really need to do some serious work, if I'm a person who doesn't trust other people and I'm a person who doesn't trust myself to express who I really am, I'm, I'm not capable of expressing my authentic thoughts and feelings and desires because I'm too inhibited by the messages I received about them when I was young. If I'm just like this restrained, then I'm going to have that kind of interaction with the children. So I do need to work on that pattern in myself. And also I can apply and see, that's the great thing about these, that what I call the self-aware success strategies. It's seven pretty simple tools for getting along with people but they can be applied as specific strategies by adults. It's the strategy of the kid, naturally. It is the strategy of an infant to trust. They have to, because they can't do anything for themselves. They're completely dependent. So they have to trust the world to take care of them. That's their strategy. We can apply the strategy. We can look at it as a tool, a thing that is a natural thing to we can look at how we're doing it now what do I need right now 
And we began the work of identifying the things that we knew from infancy, like what do I need and how do I get my needs met? And then we have to have patience. You know, we are so patient as adults when kids are learning to physically walk, when they're getting their little bodies up on those feet and cruising around the furniture and falling down every third step when they first start walking. And oh my gosh, sometimes the falls are big deals, right? They split the lip, they break the head, the trip to the emergency room. Learning to walk is a big freaking mess. Learning to express our feelings and our thoughts and what we want to other people is a big freaking mess when we first start walking. When we first start trying to do it, we're bad at it. Just like we're bad at walking when we first start walking. But everybody has patience for a child learning to walk. Well, most people do. <laughs> and almost nobody has patience for a child who's learning to go from a, a raging little monster full of expression that is messy as heck to somebody who can actually sit down and have a conversation with you about what they think and what they feel and what they need. And if we help them, they can do that by the time they're four. But if we don't help them, we wind up with a kid who has tantrums all the time or it's manipulative because they don't know how to get what they want, what they need from other people in a way that is just allowing them to be authentic and ask for it. They have to hide what they really want and then try to get it, right? Can we all experience me? this as adults. Think about that, right? Yeah, oh, this, oh yeah, this. <laughs> This is, this is, this is, yeah. Sounding familiar, anyone? Sounding very familiar. <laughs> Can you explain what you mean by, you know, if we help them, just as we would help them learn to walk or support them learn to walk, if we help them learn to navigate their big, messy, angry, meltdown feelings, mm -hmm. what do you mean by if we help them? Two things. One is can, we can help them by putting on our own oxygen mask, making sure we have the boundaries to be able to contain our own wants and needs and feelings and thoughts and hold them over here as ours, not project them onto the child or have expectations that they're going to understand what we're going through, but that we're over here, they're over there. Okay. That takes doing this the oxygen mask work that takes doing the work yourself. But I also think then there's sort of two things. There's the recognition. There's just knowing what I'm saying. Little kids are bad at this. They need stuff from us. They want stuff. They think things they're trying to tell us, but they can't hardly talk. And they're having emotions. They're starting to feel things in their body, reactions in their body to things that happen to them. And they don't understand what they are and they don't have names for them. And so partly what we do is we just see that that's happening and we understand it. We don't take it personally because we're over here inside our thoughts and feelings and needs. And that's not us over there. So we don't take it personally and we don't react to it or try to control it. We just look at it and say, this person needs something. This person wants something. What is it? We ask them. We try to understand what do you need? We usually know our kids well enough, even teachers, what it is that they need. That's, I, I like the phrase, try to figure out what's the need under the deed. You know, when a kid acts out like that, it's because of that. Parents learn to understand children's signals, just like they learn to interpret their cries when they're infants. They learn to interpret other behavior and they can, we can ask ourselves the question, when my child asks like that, what's underneath it? What's the, the <sighs> deed is here? What's the need under the deed? That makes and so a lot of times, yeah, like, you know, 
yeah. you know, when my son does is this way, I know he's tired, right? Yes, like exactly. there are some very specific behaviors that he has that says I need to go to sleep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we can also ask them, what do you need? And as they get older and older, they can better tell us what they need. And I was met when they were three and five and their mother, when I went to visit them at their home and they were acting out, uh, they were sitting at the dining room table together and the boy was doing this, like reaching for his sister, like he was going to poke her. And she would go, stop it. Mom says, calls from the living room where we're sitting, hey, to the little boy, what do you need right now? And he says, this is a, this was a pagan family. Mom was a pagan. And so he says, mom, I think I need to be smudged. So she gets up and she goes and she gets the sage smudge stick and she gives the kids a smudge and he calms right down. Now, that's probably the most uh, different example. That was one of the, I was very young when I saw that example. It was very informative that I needed to be ready for anything when I visited families. But, you know, whatever it is, we understand what's underneath that. And so we can interpret, we can look and say, what is the need under that action? And we can ask, what do you need? And we can ask them to notice their body part of self-awareness and in the moment and mindfulness is what's your body telling you about this? Where in your body is there muscle stiffness? Is there tension? Is there pain? Is there, is there anything inside your body right now happening that you'd like to tell me about? Because then you can help your kid learn that when your jaw locks down and your teeth are grunted and your fists are clenched and your quadriceps are tight as rocks, you're probably angry. All of that together sounds like anger in the body. And that's how kids learn to name feelings and talk about them up here when they really all down here in the body. We have to help. So our help is reflecting, being the mirror, saying, I see that this is happening and I see that I think this is going inside you. Is that what's going on inside you? How can I help you with that? Are you upset? Are you angry? Are you? And then also teaching them how to connect the language of emotion and talk about emotions and process and regulating emotions with what's happening in their body. And that's the other key. The final piece of it is we want children to grow up to be self-regulating. We want children who can intervene in their own cray-cray and stop themselves from going nuts on other people who can take a breath, who can pause, who cannot react. We want people to be self-possessed, but we don't help them learn that when they're little. We possess them and we control them. We tell them what to do. And a lot of us, we tell them how to be and how not be. So the last thing that we do is that we help them learn to express authentically what they are feeling in their bodies and to talk about it to help them learn how to self-regulate, self-reliant, self-regulated adults who get along well with other people. But what we do tend to do as adults is do the regulation for them instead of helping them learn to self-regulate. And a lot of helping children to self-regulate, I have to say, is staying the heck out of their way. Children are brilliant. Children are born with huge, huge confidence. And we need to slow down and let them show us all the ways that they're competent and get out of their way and let them be competent until they need help. And almost always children know when they need help and they will connect to a caregiver to get it when they need it. And if the caregiver is there and ready to help when they need the help, then we get kids who are self-regulating. 
But when we step in too soon and help, and you know, it can be anything from babies trying to reach for something and can't quite get it, and we just swoop in and hand it to them. If we gave them another 30 seconds, they'd probably get it on their own, right? Everything starting with those little motor tasks. We are, our culture, Brittany, is so in a hurry to do everything faster. You know, our grind culture, we're teaching the babies from day one, here, get the ball faster. <laughs> don't wait, let me give it to you. You know, so it's like, I don't ever get to feel my competence and I get rewarded. Uh, I get rewarded all the time out of nowhere for nothing. Here, let me give you what you want because it's just too hard for you to get it on your own, but it isn't. And uh, we need to, we need to help kids regulate themselves, learn to interpret their own feelings and learn to express themselves authentically. And, you know, they're pretty good at it by three or four. They really are. Yeah. My, my son is, he'll be four in December and it's, um, probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to learn how to do as a parent is like when he, he rarely tantrums, but when he does the hardest, one of the hardest thing that, that I've had to learn to do is like, just to sit in that space and let him have his tantrum because it's, it's like for me who grew up with a lot of childhood trauma, um, and a lot of like, not, it's uh, not safe or okay to have feelings as a child. It's really like scary in my own body you bet. Right, to watch him tantrum. Um, but it's amazing because it lasts for 30 intense seconds and then it's over and he's done. Right. It's just yeah. like, he just needs to get that steam out. And, and I I'm, I'm quite proud of the fact that he rarely tantrums because we rarely get to the point where that's the only option for him. But, but to be able to like make that switch, I think it's important to acknowledge like while we're having this conversation mm-hmm. for so many of us, it's a really hard thing to do to be able to be with your kids in their big feelings because for so many of us, we were taught that's not okay. That's not safe right? It's the parent's job to make it stop instantly. It's not okay Mm -hmm. to feel sad. It's not okay to feel angry. So this new paradigm of allowing kids to feel and helping them figure out what to feel when maybe we don't even know what feelings are. Maybe we can't even label feelings ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe we, maybe we've never allowed Mm -hmm. ourselves to have a tantrum outwardly period. We just sit with all of it inside. So it's like, I mean, this goes back to what you said about the airplane mask, right? As cliche as it is to hear about the airplane oxygen mask, we hear it all the time for for a very good reason because it, it's the truth. And um, you know, I think any of my any of my clients would would t- would t- tell you that. I always invite them to ask, like, where did this originate? Right? Where did this trigger with your stepkids originate yes. in you and and your own? childhood essentially so yeah and one of the things that i i want to be sure to mention because it's become very important to me just recently is the difference between repatterning our behavior and repatterning our nervous system so those of us who had four five six seven of those aces we have central nervous especially if they started very young before age three we have central nervous system wiring that is causing us problems and we cannot fix that with just psychology and behavior patterning. It starts there. I can help you change your behavior and then you'll start to feel how you need to change your neurons. And so what's happening for me now is I've changed enough of my behavior that I've gotten down to the bedrock of, 
I need to change my neurons. So I need neural reprogramming now. And that's the work that I'm doing. I have to, I have to rewire myself and, and, and re-regulate my own emotional nervous system so that I can help kids regulate. And I just had a, an experience of doing it. So I know that it's changing. I helped a three-year-old, almost three-year-old regulate through a little traumatic experience of an injury to another child. And I was brilliant. I regulated myself with the techniques that I've been learning. I regulated her and she came out of that experience with not any sense of trauma and was so glad to see me the next time I came over. So I, I want to make sure that we all get there is work we can do for ourselves up to a point and then we need help and we need people who understand our central nervous systems to help us become experts on how those are working too. Absolutely. And yeah. I really, you know, I really believe this is my own bias, of course, but I really believe that any coach, mentor, counselor, et cetera, who you occupy a space with needs to have some kind of trauma informed education because we all yes. have it. We all have it. Right. And I, and I think that more and more providers, practitioners are becoming more trauma informed as we move forward. But if this is really resonating with you, this conversation that we're having, you know, if, if you look up the adverse childhood experiences and you realize that you have a whole bunch of them that happened to you and with you, then it's even more important to select a practitioner to help you on this journey who has a, a very, at least minimal understanding of being at least trauma informed in their practice. Otherwise, like you said, otherwise then it's just reprogramming the behavior, right? We, and we can, we can be re-traumatized as well inadvertently mm -hmm. by practitioners who are not informed about how trauma changes um, us, how early trauma changes us. It changes us. It, you know, when I, people say, oh, the early childhood years are so influential, they shape. No, they don't. They don't influence. They don't shape. They absolutely determine us. Those first three years of wiring your brain up, they absolutely make you who you are. It's not a permanent story. It's mutable. It is rewritable. It is reprogrammable, but it's there. And until we turn around and look in the mirror and say, oh my gosh, look at that crazy story I'm living in. <laughs> it's impossible to do anything about it. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. Um, something I think that a lot of people overlook is, is, or a lot of people, there's like this, this misled expectation that so many folks have when they kind of enter into this space, whether they start on this quest to like heal all their stuff and get in the personal development wagon and get in the trauma healing wagon. They, and I, uh, speaking from experience, because I used to believe that this was a place, I misguidedly believed that there was just this place I would get to where, <laughs> the, where the clouds would open up and the clouds would open up and the sunshine would rain down from the sky and I have arrived, right? I am healed. I am healed. I am done. <laughs> it is over, but you know, the oh. more layers... <laughs> But the more layers we peel, the more layers we realize are left to peel. And, yeah. and I think that detachment from this belief and detachment from this expectation that you ever get to be done or ever are done or ever want to be done getting to know yourself more and more is uh, an expectation that we should just throw out the window right now. <laughs> the, the, I agree. The place does not I exist. absolutely agree. <laughs> mm -hmm. I agree. Carol, really quickly, could you um, explain to us 
how you've translated this extremely important early childhood development work into work with adults, into your success strategies, because I think that this work is just absolutely mind-blowing so important. The resource that you sent that we will link up in the show notes for you listeners is fantastic. So Reader's Digest, Cole's Notes version of this, these sassy success strategies that will change your life. All right. So the seven self-aware success strategies, um, using all of the research and literature and theory on child development, I just picked out for each age, birth through seven, what's the most obvious, observable, strategy that kids use in interpersonal relationships that we need as adults then to be successful. So trust when you're an infant, trusting other people to meet your needs. That's your first success strategy. Independence when you're a toddler, knowing who you are and expressing it authentically. That's your success strategy as a toddler. Faith as a three-year-old child, believing in everything, believing in the impossible, believing in the fantastical magic fairies, whatever, the the ability to believe in something that you can't see or prove. Four-year-old, negotiation, the ability to get what you want by figuring out how to help other people get what they want at the same time. Learning the win-win is the four-year-old strategy. At five, we become the strategic planners of the preschool world and we have vision. We set goals, we make plans, we want to create stuff. At six, how to compromise, how to let go of some of the things we want in order to get some of the things we want and and to get along well in a bigger group in the world, to get along in a wider community. And then finally by seven, we have to also develop the strategy of acceptance for when things don't go as well as we'd like. Because no matter how good you are, no matter how well behaved, no matter how you follow the rules, things will go badly. Something will go badly. You can be the best person in the world and something bad can happen to you. And you just have to accept that that's the way life is or else you're not ever going to be able to go on when the bad things happen. You have to get up and keep going. So those are the seven success strategies of the early childhood years. Trust, independence, faith, negotiation, vision, compromise, and acceptance. And is this, I mean, I'm not sure if this will be a full circle moment from the beginning of the podcast or not, but was this inspired by way back when you were just beginning your career and watching those preschool kids have these skills develop that you as a 30 year old had never developed yet. Is that where the inspiration came from this? That's exactly where it began. It started there and it continued actually through some metaphysical studies because you know, the number seven, It is not insignificant in the universe. That's a pretty special number. And when I started really looking at the seven years of early childhood as part of a sort of universal pattern of things happening in sevens and in cycles of seven, it became really important to me to think about what is the like diamond, the essence of each one of those seven very important years. What do we get that we need as adults? And I started looking around at the other adults with me and saying, ooh, maybe we could learn how to trust each other better. That'd be good. So yeah, it started there and then it evolved over a pretty long period of time to get to the great um, training and workshops and written a couple of books. And now I'm offering this little bookette that we've been referring to, a little 22-page mini book 
about your seven self-aware success strategies. And I want to offer that to anybody listening right now. Just send me an email at carol at lcarolscott.com and you will get that back. That is a, don't let the fact that it is only 22 pages dissuade you because in 22 pages, there is so, 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 so much profound information crammed into those 22 pages. I, yeah, I, anyway, email, email Dr. L. Carol Scott, and you make sure that you get that book if you are listening to this right now, because it's absolutely incredible. We'll make sure to uh, link your email address up in the show notes so that listeners can reach out to you and get their beautiful hands on a copy of that. Um, If our listeners would like to connect with you or grab a book of yours or listen to a talk or join a workshop, where is the best place for them to be able to find you? All things at lcarolscott.com. The website is current and full of fresh. I put my podcast recordings up there. My coaching cadre uh, information is available. I'm doing small group coaching with groups of seven women for seven weeks and um, doing them in cadres starting one this winter uh, and December, I think. And then another one starts in the spring. Um, so everything that I'm doing is starts there, starts there to find out the deets. Amazing. And not a coincidence that there are seven women in this group. Am I correct? Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Carol, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners here today before we wrap up our conversation? Bring all the strategies from your earliest self into your latest self and rise to be the queen of your life. This is what I want for women is to throw off all the limitations and rise to be the fullness that we are, the unique individual miracles that each of us is. Let's do that. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Made a choir, say amen. (laughs) Amazing conversation, amazing work that you are doing in the world. So important. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the time that you took to be with us and to share your message and to share your work with us um, and your generosity to share your booklet with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. I can't wait to talk to you again soon and to see what else you continue to do. So thank you so much. It's been amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much for me. I wanted to let you know about a special online mini training that I'm offering for free for a limited time. It's called Peace, Love, Stepmom. And not to toot my own horn, but beep, beep, it's pretty freaking awesome. Peace, Love, Stepmom will give you the exact steps to take in order to create more harmony in your stepfamily without feeling like you have to walk on eggshells or bite your tongue or ignore your own needs just to keep the peace. Because if you are listening to this, then chances are pretty good that you know there's a big difference between not fighting and actually feeling peaceful. To enroll in Peace Love Stepmom and get immediate access to this incredible online course, head to peacelovestepmom.com and sign up. It's totally free. You don't want to miss it.
So go to peacelovestepmom.com to enroll and get immediate access. I hope this episode got your wheels turning and showed you just how powerful you are. I would invite you to take 30 seconds and tap subscribe to this podcast. When you subscribe to the podcast, then rest assured you will never miss an episode. And in no time, spinning your wheels will be a thing of the past. Thank you for listening and subscribing. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the absolute world to me if after you subscribed, you jumped on over and left me a five-star review and better yet, a written review. I am on a mission to let every mom and stepmom know that you can create the life of your dreams. And I need your help to change the world. The world needs us. Thank you so much for subscribing and leaving me a five-star review. I will see you next week. For more behind-the-scenes action and to get really up close and personal with me and our beautiful step family, jump on over to Instagram and follow me at The Step Queen. Don't be shy. Send me a DM. Tag me in your posts, tag me in your stories, let me know what you're up to and what about the podcast has been blowing your mind. I cannot wait to get to know you better and Instagram is my jam. I love you so much. I love you so much. Make it rain, girlfriend. <laughs>